Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, there has been much more attention focused on the mental health of Canadian producers. Many suffer in silence. We continue our conversation with Jerry Friesen, a stress and conflict management specialist and mental health advocate. On the last episode, he shared his story on being diagnosed with depression and how he brought his illness into the open and made the decision to seek help. As a recovering farmer, Jerry talks about the stresses associated with agriculture, how to cope with the things in life we can't control, and how just talking to someone can be very therapeutic. And a report on women in agriculture sees both the challenges and opportunities. Dr. Amber Fletcher is an associate professor with the University of Regina. She says women face challenges of sexism, discrimination and access to financing. But she also says that attitudes are changing. Amber will share the report's eight recommendations to support women in agriculture, including more childcare support and access to training. After the break, Jerry Friesen. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. My guest is mental health advocate and recovering farmer, Jerry Friesen. Let's talk a little bit about the stresses agriculture-wise. Um, I think of back in the day, <laughs> going back many years, farming was a lot simpler. And I think as farms have grown and there's more responsibilities where rather than a farmer putting in a crop, now he's basically an administrator or a CEO of a multi-million dollar company. So what kind of stresses are being placed on farmers now as compared to in the past? It, it, it's incredible. Uh, and again, yes, I know when you talk about, let's go back. Um, when I grew up, my dad was a grain farmer, and and it was simple back then. There was basically one variety of each grain that you could grow, and you had basically one chemical, and it seemed that, you know, the, the herbicides and pesticides weren't as necessary as they seem to be today, or maybe they just didn't deal with it. So everything was simple, and yes. Now these days, and, and I saw a number the other day, I wish I had it handy on how many decisions a farmer has to make every day. And so it's, it's, we talk about things outside of our control, like weather, and you know, talked about insects or, or weeds or whatever, but all the things that are now in a farmer's control and, and how they have to make those decisions is incredibly stressful. And, and when, when we start getting stressed out about those decisions, then we start making decisions based on, on the wrong, inf- or not the wrong information, but, but we start, I, I often talk about um, uh, people having two brains, a thinking brain and a feeling brain. And, and when, when we get stressed out, what happens is very often the feeling brain takes over, which just, you know, wants to say, well, let's just sell everything and move to Mexico, you know, but those kind of reactions or, or the feeling brain is one that very easily gets angry. And so we don't allow the thinking brain to do what it needs to do, where it can look at relevant information to make these decisions. And so that's where we have to try and try and get that thinking brain to work, because again, these decisions have to be made. And just about when the right decision, or you feel you've made the right decision, circumstances change, right? 
uh, and, and again, let's use COVID. I mean, that's what we're dealing with right now. I read an article yesterday about how, how in spring farmers put in crops, and suddenly, you know what? The way people are dealing with COVID changes the way they eat. You know, the restaurant business, the grocery business, all of those are changing. And so suddenly, uh, I read an article about about where where a vegetable producer. And this was south of the border, obviously. A vegetable vegetable producer destroyed a bunch of crops because there was no sale for it because the eating habits of people had changed. Something closer to home is is last fall or I guess last year farmers were growing canola and then because of politics suddenly there was a trade war happening and and, and so then China shut the door to canola imports and so so that impacted it. I I. I I sometimes talk about the fact that farmers go out in spring, they invest a pile of money, put in a crop, and they really have no idea what that market's going to be like come fall, right? Because of all these different things that can happen. Let's talk a little bit about the things we control, the things we cannot control, and uh, let's discuss weather. There's nothing more stressful, and we talked ahead of the interview about uh, a major hailstorm that came through that impacted a lot of farmers that lost a lot of crop straight up. How do we deal with those two issues, the, what we control and what we don't control, and how can we rationalize it in a way that we can separate it and take a look at it and deal with it um, in, in a rational manner? You know, and when I talk about this, I know it's easier said than done. I've often said that, yes, I was a hog producer, so weather wasn't a very large concern for me. Uh, and if I if I was a grain producer going to bed at night and looking into the western sky and wondering if another storm was coming or looking at the forecast, that's incredible stressful. Um, but what I tell people is if you can, those things you can't control, try and put them on a shelf. Uh, because worrying about it doesn't doesn't help, right? And again, that's easier said than done, obviously. But if, if we if we can kind of put those things that we can't control aside, our our list of stressors becomes shorter, so that so they don't feel quite so overwhelming. So so then we can deal with the things we can control, uh, which which makes life somewhat easier. You can certainly relate to what hog producers are going through now with your own personal experience, can't you? Uh, very much so. Uh, I saw a picture uh, on Twitter, actually, a couple of months ago when, when there was uh, outbreaks of COVID and employees in packing plants um, south of the border. And, and I saw a picture, for example, of, of someone that had to euthanize pigs, and, and I... My heart just broke because, aside from all the other stressors, now when you start doing something uh, with the animals that you've cared for and looked after and made sure that at the end of the day you've got something to sell, suddenly now that's gone too. So, yeah, when I see some of this stuff, it, it kind of takes me back. My guest is Jerry Friesen, a mental health advocate. I certainly um, remember a conversation I had with um, a friend that was dealing with some some stressors uh, in his life, and he just, he, I remember him looking at me and saying, I just want to feel better. 
And I think yeah. some of that feeling like your old self, um, you know, the way you felt five, ten years ago. How do you how do you feel better? What do you do when you're when you're feeling in a in a dark place and you know you're there and you want to pull out? You know, that, that's an interesting question, Alice. I know that um, when, I, when I talk to people about this, and even in my own life, I know that there's, number one, we have to be self-aware um, of what we're going through. Uh, number two, there are some simple things in life that do help. And you know what? Uh, first and foremost, of course, when we start suffering mentally, we start ignoring what's happening in our bodies. Um, things like exercise, and of course, I hate talking to farmers about exercise. <laughs> I know they spend a lot of time running around. Um, I know their Fitbits are probably showing them 10,000 steps by noon, but, but there's other things. Eating. Um, I'll tell you, I, I noticed that, and, and I'm infamous for this, and particularly now again with COVID, when I've basically been working out of my house, and my wife isn't home, she goes off to her job, I'm not going to eat a proper lunch. If I don't eat properly, I can feel myself mentally slipping, um, sleeping. Um, so many people I talk to, I've been blessed that I can sleep. Eight hours a night is no problem for me. Others can't do that, and, and when we get when we get tired above all the stress that we have, it affects us uh, very negatively. So, so if we can take care of our physical bodies, that's helpful. Uh, we have to train our minds. Um, I know that it's very easily easy to slip into what I like to call stinking thinking, where where we're just focusing in and obsessing about negative things in life, and and so we have to. And again, it takes a lot of training. I've been able to do this with a lot of practices where, where it's, it's impossible to push negative thoughts out of your mind. But what you can do is bring in positive minds, which makes, sorry, positive thoughts, which, which makes the more negative ones disappear. So I, I sometimes in simple terms say, find your happy place. Um, I know that... Uh, and a lot of people know that I'm an avid golfer, and, and for years, particularly back again when the farm was going through, or we were going through our struggles, I would often wake up at night and just instantly have anxiety attacks because I was thinking about the call to the banker the next day or knowing that I was going to come up short financially or wondering how I could make payments. And, and so that created a lot of anxiety. So what I did in my mind is I, I started playing a golf course in my head. And, and I often say jokingly that by the fourth hole, I was back asleep again. So, so we have to get those pleasant, happier thoughts into our mind. Um, Self-talk. Again, when we make, have to make all these decisions on the farm, um, and we make a wrong one. I mean, what do we do, right? We call ourselves idiots, and we kick ourselves, and we say we shouldn't have done that. I sometimes say to people, if you would talk to your friends the way you talk to yourself, would you have any friends? <laughs> Probably most of us wouldn't, because we, don't, we, we, we have this tendency to beat ourselves up, and so we have to make sure we use positive self-talk, because... Nobody's going to go through life without making a wrong decision. And, and again, if, if we can feel comfortable that we've made our decisions, our choices, 
based on the best information possible at the time, that's all we can do. And so, so we have to make sure one of the issues I really struggled with, and perhaps this is why my family was more aware of my issues than I thought they were, is, is when, when I became overwhelmed with stress and anxiety, my expectations for myself and for others went up considerably. And so, so when, when, when things were not going well, um, I would beat myself up. I couldn't do anything right. Nobody else could do anything right. So our expectations are totally out of whack. Um, so the, the, these are just some of the things, again, and a lot of it, Alice, boils down to, to being proactive, not proactive as much as being self-aware and, and understand that, oh, there's something going on and I need to be proactive in dealing with it. So, Jerry, if you pick the golf course, I'm going to take the fishing boat in the middle of the lake on a really nice summer afternoon. That'll be mine. Does, that'll work, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Jerry, Absolutely. you know, we have talked about talking. Um, I guess we can't underestimate the the value of a good laugh, too. I know I've talked to different people about this, and it's really amazing how spending time uh, with people, talking to people, and uh, and having a good laugh is quite therapeutic. Alice, kids laugh up to 400 times a day. Wow. <laughs> and as adults, as adults, that often goes down to 12 times a day. Mm-hmm. And so you're absolutely right. We need to laugh more. And, and in fact, you talked about becoming emotional. One of the things that still gets me is, and I imagine this was probably... Two years after I was diagnosed with depression, I was and, and I was starting to be in a better place. And my daughter would have been maybe 12, 13 years old at the time. I was sitting and watching my favorite show at the time, Two and a Half Men, and I laughed out loud. And I was sitting alone in the family room, and my daughter came and looked in the door, and she said, Dad, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, why? And she said she had never, ever heard me laugh as loud before. Wow. And that really, stra- yeah, and, and that's why, like I said, that, things like that make me emotional because, again, it's sad, right? I, I, we need to laugh more. After the break, Amber Fletcher with the University of Regina Levine School of Business has completed a study on women agriculture entrepreneurs. She will share eight recommendations that came from that report, and she'll also have some insights on how women can be helping each other. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarland. Dr. Amber Fletcher is my guest, sharing information on a study that she was part of that focused on women agriculture entrepreneurs. Now, before we get to the report's recommendations, I wanted to talk about the organizations that have been created specifically for women in agriculture. Uh, Amber, how important are these groups uh, in helping women to get involved in the ag sector? Oh, very important. Yes, we did hear a lot about uh, women in egg conferences, for example. There are Facebook groups. There are formal networks of, of women in agriculture who are supporting each other. And we did hear about the importance of those networks, mutual support between women, 
uh, mentoring, which was uh, an important recommendation for us coming from this report as well. So I do think that those kinds of, of networks, whether they be quite formal or informal, are very, very important. Some of the women we interviewed actually said that they would be willing to be contacted by younger women looking to get into the industry, into the sector. And, uh, and yes, it, it, was, it was seen as very important overall. We did hear some criticism of, uh, in some cases, efforts to make women in egg visible without addressing the very real challenges and barriers that women face. So there was criticism of perhaps overly optimistic, overly uh, bright and shiny, romanticized portrayals of women in egg, and a need, uh, as some participants expressed, to to be realistic about those challenges, about childcare challenges and and sexism and and discrimination that do unfortunately continue to exist. But overall, those uh, those kinds of initiatives initiatives are very important. So based on the findings. Um the authors of the report came up with eight recommendations. Maybe just run through what those were. Sure. Uh, yes. So our first recommendation was really related to visibility. So the importance of accurately accounting for women egg entrepreneurs. One of the major points that we tried to make in this report is that women farm operators are women egg entrepreneurs, even if they may not use the label. The characteristics of entrepreneurship certainly apply to women farm operators, also to processors, to distillers, to those that are working in various links of the food chain. So the importance of uh, expanding our understanding of what counts as women's egg entrepreneurship and making sure that, uh, particularly in the case of farm partnerships, that women's uh, formal partnership on those operations is recognized as we do see a a low rate of um, formality of farm partnerships. The second recommendation is uh, about, again, about recognition, adopting language that that recognizes the expertise of women across the egg sector, and, uh, and, and getting away from using terminology that still gets used today, like farm wife, for example, and rather recognizing women as farmers in their own right, or as processors, distillers, um, whatever kind of, uh, of link in the chain that they represent. The, the third recommendation is for increased support for childcare and child-friendly spaces. So this includes, for example, rural childcare, the creation of rural childcare spaces, particularly those that are attentive to agricultural schedules. It's we all know agriculture is not a nine-to-five kind of job, and childcare is needed for the kinds of schedules that farmers have. Um, we also recognized, and it was recommended by many women, that uh, child-friendly spaces. So when they are at farm meetings or seminars or information sessions, having maybe a, a room nearby where the, some childcare is provided, or maybe having a breastfeeding area in the back, would really facilitate women's ability to participate in those kinds of events. Um, we also recommended, fourthly, that men become actively supportive of changes in agriculture. So, again, women talk to us about how because their male partner was actively involved in childcare, they were able to do the kinds of work that they had done to be successful. And so so men taking a leading role in, in challenging stereotypes when they hear them and in actively playing a role in their own homes as well. 
Dr. Amber Fletcher is my guest. Uh, the fifth recommendation was centered on building coalitions. What exactly do you mean by that? It goes back to the Women in Egg Networks, mentorship, uh, conferences and seminars, training. These kinds of things are, are very important for addressing those barriers to confidence and credibility that so many of our participants talked about. The sixth and uh, relatedly is about access to training programs, to education. Um, there is uh, there is a need, especially in, in a sector like agriculture, where women are not often socialized or brought up to see themselves as potential egg entrepreneurs, farmers, processors, etc. So there is a need to sort of counteract that lack of, of socialization into the sector with in additional training and education so that women can feel confident in their abilities. And we identified some great programs such as the Awesome Program, which does that kind of work. The seventh recommendation is access to finance. So here we looked at great examples, for example, Farm Credit Canada and WESC, Women Entrepreneurship Saskatchewan, have great financial lending programs that are targeted specifically for either women entrepreneurs or women egg entrepreneurs specifically. And I think that targeting is really important, recognizing the unique barriers that women face and designing programs to address those barriers. And then finally, the last recommendation is about policy. And it was very strongly noted that there are sectors of agriculture where women are still very underrepresented, policy and leadership being one of them, um, but also areas like uh, primary production, for example, and being recognized as, as farm operators. The machinery sector was another area where women are still quite underrepresented. And so uh, and the policy initiative to address that those issues of underrepresentation and getting women into the leadership roles in agriculture is also really important to return to that whole visibility aspect. So those are our main recommendations. Uh, the report's fascinating and really great data. Where do you go from here with this information? How do you share it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, we have, uh, we've been doing a lot of conversations like this one. So speaking to the media to get the recommendations out there. Um, we hope to, uh, COVID of course has thrown a bit of a challenge into things, but uh, we do hope to do some presentations as well to make the recommendations very public. And, uh, and we just hope that by clearly articulating our recommendations, they, we hope that they'll be readily taken up by policymakers, by lenders, um, by anyone that's, that's really working to encourage women's representation in the egg sector. I think it's interesting uh, as well, watching things that come across our, our news feed, seeing the number of young women who apply for and are successful receiving scholarships, uh, whether they're provincial scholarships or through major companies and that type of thing. I think that's another one of those optimistic signs that um, that women are truly interested in, in being uh, major players in the industry. And I think that the report also stated that. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I think the rate at which we're seeing young women graduating from agriculture programs, agronomy programs, vet tech programs or veterinary um, these these kinds of things are very inspiring, and uh, and I do think it shows that women are interested, and if they are encouraged 
to see agriculture as a viable career option for themselves, particularly early on, then that just makes the process so much easier as well. So I do think that whole, there's formal education, which of course is, as a university professor, I think it's extremely important. But I think there's also that informal education from the time that uh, girls are small, if they're if they're growing up on the farm, or or maybe they're they're one degree away from from the farm. Maybe it was their grandparents, etc. That idea of of introducing agriculture and the egg industry, broadly speaking, as a, a viable career opportunity for women is really important from a young age. So I would just say thank you very much for including this in your podcast and drawing attention to this important issue. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Dr. Amber Fletcher is a sociology professor with the University of Regina. It's time for the Agriculture News Roundup for the week of August 3rd, 2020. Harvest operations just nicely got started in southern Saskatchewan. The latest provincial crop report is showing the warm weather helped crop progress, and most farmers are estimating that their crops are at the normal stage of development. However, there was minimal rain across the province, and it would be welcome for the cereals and pulses in the seed-filling stages. That warm and dry weather also resulted in reduced pasture growth in many areas. Many canola crops are in pretty good shape. Ian Epp is an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada covering northwest and west-central Saskatchewan. He said the recent heat at the end of July helped most crops, and he added that with harvest coming, some rain would be welcome. Cattle producers say they're not benefiting from sharp increases in beef prices at the grocery store due to COVID-19. Statistics Canada released an update which showed beef strip loin went from $18.60 a kilogram in February to $30.83 in June. Arnold Balicki is the president of the Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association. He says it's not the first time this has happened, and he added cattle prices have started to improve but are still well below pre-COVID levels. A union representing workers at a meat processing plant in Manitoba says four more employees have tested positive for COVID-19. A total of eight employees at Maple Leaf Pork Plant in Brandon have now tested positive. The union, which represents nearly 2,000 workers at the plant, is renewing its call to have the company halt production there until the situation is under control. The packages of mysterious seeds that have been making unsolicited appearances in mailboxes across North America are drawing attention to an online review scam that has recently appeared in the country. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency warned gardeners last week not to plant any seeds they receive in the mail without ordering, warning that they could be from invasive species or even carry pests. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Patterson Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.